Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. Did we not have a wonderful missions conference? It was wonderful. I want to say thanks to everyone who was so deeply involved in that. I've heard time and time again, and I truly believe that there's never a time on our focus on missions more impactful than we had these uh, last week or so. And so I'm very, very grateful, especially for the team that led and for uh, Lisa Newsom, our director of global outreach, uh, who uh, led all of that. And we're very thankful for our partnerships, new partners, and to recognize that we are on mission with God. You know, God is the missionary. God has a mission. God has a purpose. We are part of that mission. We're not just a observers of that mission. We are in that mission. In fact, we are the mission as redeemed people, and now we are on mission with him, and that mission continues. And now I want us to look today at Luke chapter 5 and recognize in a very special way that we have been called by our king to join him on this mission. And that is this wonderful passage that we've read, Luke chapter 5. Turn there, if you would, again, uh, page 860, if you're using the Bible. And we're going to see here, as we're making our journey through Luke, that the Messiah is establishing uh, his identity, both in preaching and his power to heal and to deliver those who are oppressed by the enemy. He is being demonstrated to truly be the Messiah. But now we enter this section, chapter 5 through chapter 8, where we truly begin to see him as he demonstrates that he is the king of glory and he has kingdom authority. He had it then and he has it now, right? And we're going to see that this king of heaven is reigning over his kingdom, which is the kingdom in our hearts. The king of heaven is the king of hearts because the expression of his kingdom right now is not a visible expression in the sense of his physical presence, but it is a real kingdom, is it not? He rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. He's the king of hearts. And I want us to see this morning as he shows then and wants us to understand now that he has all kingdom authority. He has all kingdom authority. And it's demonstrated in the life of this, who is this one who's become the leader of the disciples. The Lord displays his kingdom authority in this king-size encounter that he has with the fisherman, Simon Peter. And now it's, in some ways, to me, as I read it, uh, a humorous encounter, in some ways, and maybe that's just my quirky mind, <laughs> very well could be. But it, as I was reading this this week, it it strangely reminded me of something that happened in my life a few years ago. Uh, I saw this. I was having my car worked on in a service department. 
And I saw a sign that said hourly rate, $75 an hour. Now, that tells you right there, it was a few years ago, $75 an hour. Many times you did not know going to service center that you're taking your card with surgeon, okay? But you are, the fees are quite similar sometimes. But the sign said hourly rate, $75 an hour. And then it said, you watch, $150 an hour. And then it said, you help, $250 an hour. Now, it's, it's, that was funny, but some of you identify that, you know, maybe some of you had the experience, perhaps someone here, you've been a teacher for maybe 20 or more years, and, and some newbie comes along and says, could I just give you a little help with that lesson plan, you know, how you did that? Maybe some of you have been involved in business or sales for 30 years or more, and someone says, you know, could I, I, I got another idea about your approach, your presentation. Could be that you've been a pastor for 40 years and someone, well, I'll just let that go, okay? I'll just <laughs> let that go. You know, the reality is we all need to continue to be learners, right? Lifelong learners. You know what the word disciple means? The word disciple means learner. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you are, by the very definition of who you are, a learner all the days of your life. You're a learner. And we need to be willing to learn. And sometimes we have to learn in humility from people who help us learn and maybe we know more about it than they do in some way. But the Lord's still going to use them. That's what I see here in this king size encounter. You're going to have a lifelong fisherman told how to fish by a young carpenter. A young carpenter from Nazareth is going to tell a lifelong fisherman how to fish in the Sea of Galilee. So let's open this up because, of course, there is a deeper message that the Lord has for us. It was a real event. It truly happened, but it had a deeper and eternal significance. Now, as we look at this passage, what I want us to do this morning is just use the method that we've talked about in the past. Maybe it's new to you if you haven't heard it. I call it the, the REAP method, the REAP method, R-E-A-P. Uh, you read the passage, you examine it, you apply it, and you pray it. Do you know you can, you can start a Bible study group, you can start a men's group or a women's group or a group in your home. All you have to do is read. Just get the Bible out, read it, examine it, apply it, pray it. Doesn't matter whether you're sharing with a group if you're reading for yourself, how do you have your devotions? How do you go about meditating on the Word of God? Here's how you meditate on the Word of God. You read it. You examine it. You apply it to your heart. And then you end by praying and offering it all up to God who gave it to you to start with. <laughs> you can do that for yourself. You can do that for thousands. Read, examine, apply, pray. Now let's do that this morning. Let's 
verse by verse, just read this passage and examine it. First of all, verse 1. On occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or it's also referred to as the Sea of Galilee. It is a, a lake, actually, not a sea, uh, with a diameter about 11 miles. Large, large lake. Now, the timeline here, if you again examine, Jesus has started his public ministry. He began, really, in his hometown of Nazareth. He was rejected there when he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. They tried to kill him. He makes his way down to the seashore around the Sea of Galilee, and he is sharing the good news of the kingdom. He is spreading the word of God, teaching the word of God, and people are coming to hear a word from God. Notice verse 1 says he's speaking and sharing. The crowd wants to hear the word of God. He's teaching not as a rabbi. It's not like he's quoting commentaries or meaningless applications of the Talmud, but he is explaining the word of God. He's sharing it with them and applying it with them. And huge crowds are coming. Huge crowds. Because this is a very populated area. Do not think of Jesus, as I've said before, in his ministry is out in the middle of nowhere. And he's got a ragtag group of 25 or 30 people who are being baked by the sun. And they come out to listen to him as long as they can, trying to get away the scorpions and the snakes. No, we're told by a historian who lived in this area in the same century, first century, his name was Josephus. In one of his writings, he estimated the population of Galilee to be about three million people. Jesus was doing these things in front of tens of thousands of people at times. And they are pressing to hear him so much that they're at this point about to back him into the lake. And what happens? Verse 2. He looks behind and he sees two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and they were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now notice, it says there were two empty boats here. Now you must make sure you understand again the scene. These are not rowboats. Uh, they, these are not, you know, one or two people in, you get the oars and you go out. No, these are, these are fishing vessels suited for that size of a lake. Uh, they have between 20 to maybe 25 men that can work on one of these boats. And there's two of them there. He gets into the one who, that belongs to Simon. This is Simon Peter. And asks that it be pushed out from the shore. And so Jesus gets up in the boat. And now he's elevated. And he can sit at the, at the prow of the boat. And 
he can share and his voice will go out over the water and be amplified going up to the thousands that are seated on the hillside. It's a beautiful arrangement. He's got his floating pulpit <laughs> and the crowd sitting there having church on the Sea of Galilee. I remember years ago, years ago, on a Sunday morning, we took a group over. We were out on the Sea of Galilee on a Sunday morning, a bright, sunshiny morning on Sunday, and we were worshiping the Lord out on a boat the same size of which Jesus was in. Wow, what a moment. Verse 4, Jesus finishes his message. And then Jesus... <laughs> He won't, uh, he won't uh, borrow a pulpit without paying for it. I've, I've not quite gotten to that level of spirituality myself, but <laughs> verse, verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, go out deeper, and let your nets down for a catch. Now, of course, these directions seemed silly at very best to Peter. This is exactly what you expect from a carpenter who doesn't know a thing about fishing. And this isn't the time you do this. Hey, they fish at night. It's, it's a third shift job. And they fish until the sun comes up. And then after water starts to get a little warm by the rising of the sun, the fish go deeper. You can't catch them. So they come in and having gotten their fish out, then they clean their nets in the water and they dry them on the side of the, of the shore. This is what they do. This is now up in the day. It's warm. This is not the time. And Peter is definitely right now not the man to say this to because he is a grumpy, grouchy fisherman who is grumpier and grouchier than a fisherman who's fished all night and caught nothing. Nothing. He's bone tired. He's hungry. He's grumpy. He's exasperated. It sounds a little bit like this, verse 5. Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. He responds reluctantly, skeptically, half-heartedly, but obediently. No one in this room has ever responded to the Lord that way, right? <laughs> oh, no, we're just always, here I am, Lord, here I am, send me. You know, or sometimes a little more like Moses, here am I, send Aaron. Hey, send him. <laughs> Aaron is your man. <laughs> we're great at volunteering other people. You have been volunteered. But he responds, but at your word, I will. It's interesting, the, the word that Luke uses here to describe Peter's attitude. The, the word here, master, master, it, it, it's apistopes. Apistopes means uh, leader, 
commander, uh, boss. And so the idea here is of, of uh, Luke trying to capture for Greek-speaking people the attitude of Simon. It's like this. He's saying, you're the captain. <laughs> if you say so, Mr. Carpenter Captain. <laughs> it's kind of that idea. Well, it wasn't long until Peter's skeptical reluctance became stunned amazement. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that the boats began to sink. Absolutely astounding. This is so absolutely astounding and it's going to have an astounding effect on Peter for a reason. Don't miss the reason. Why is this such an astounding event? Because, listen folks, it is a display of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's a display of His divinity. Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't put His hand in the water and stir it around. He doesn't stand up like Moses and part the sea and the fish are flopping. He just thinks. He just thinks. And the fish must obey his thoughts. They do exactly opposite of what their nature is. Their nature is to go to the bottom, to stay deep in the heat of the day. But when they sense the command of their creator, they do exactly what he says, even coming up in numbers beyond calculation and literally jumping into the nets. That's the idea here. What does this mean? Yes, Jesus has power over diseases. He's shown that. Jesus has power over demons. He's already shown that. But this is that Jesus has power over creation itself. Why? Because he is the creator incarnate. Without him, nothing was made that was made, says the apostle John, who was also there that day. He is the eternal word of God. He is the expression of the mind of God. He is incarnate, incarnate God himself. And when he wills something to happen, it is God almighty willing it and it will be done. That's what's happening here. Verse 8. It had just a little bit of an impact on Peter. And when Simon Peter saw it, how many times had he seen nets come up out of the water? 
thousands and thousands. And when he saw this, did he jump up and down saying, whoa, catch of a lifetime. Whoa, boys. Retirement has come. No. When he saw it, he fell on his knees in his own boat. And he said, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. When he looks into those nets, completely overwhelmed in fish. He himself is completely overwhelmed. He's completely overwhelmed. Why is he overwhelmed? What is it? What is it about those fish in those nets that rather than causing Peter to jump up and down and saying, I've won the lottery that he drops to his knees and begins to confess he is a sinner. What has happened? It is a flashing moment of illumination. He has been illumined to his condition. He has been illumined to who he is he is a sinner, and he knows that. Why? Because he's been illumined to who Jesus is, the divine one. He sees himself not compared to James and John and Andrew. He sees himself not compared to the rabbi or the other people who go to synagogue. He sees himself compared to the Holy One. And he drops to his knees and calls him what? Not master. He calls him Lord. I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. Not rabbi, not just captain, not what he's just said. He is Lord. Meaning, divine one. He experiences this flashing moment of humiliation. He recognizes who he is, a sinful man. Why does he respond this way? Listen carefully. Because he knows that this one in the boat who can gaze into the depths of the, of the sea this one who can gaze into the darkest depths of the sea can gaze into the dark, darkest places in his soul. The depths of the sea are open to this one and the depths of his soul are also open this one. It, this is a, for Peter, this is a, Fearfully, fearfully holy 
moment. It is like he has just stepped into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. This boat, his boat, has become the Holy of Holies. It is like he has stepped behind the curtain in the temple and he is in the presence of the God of Jacob. And when he realizes that, he's undone. He's devastated and he confesses his sin. It's a fearfully holy moment. But now notice what changes everything. This fearfully holy moment when this condemned sinner acknowledges that God is holy and he is unholy. It becomes a wonderfully hopeful moment. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. Listen and look. Listen and look. Listen to what Peter says and then look at what Peter does. Because he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man and yet he has fallen to his knees And it's as if, no doubt, he's grasping the feet of Jesus and he's crying out, depart from me, I am a sinful man. But at the same time, everything about him is saying, but don't leave me. Depart from me, but don't leave me. Depart from me, but don't leave me. There is the miracle moment. When a sinner knows himself or herself, To stand undone before a holy God and yet does not try to hide, doesn't try to cover up, doesn't try to make excuses, but simply crashes to his or her knees and says, don't leave me. I have no hope but you. You are holy and I am not, but I plead for your mercy. That's the moment. That's the miracle moment. What happens next? Really is the miracle. Oh, the fish. That's amazing. But it's what the Lord of glory, creator in heaven, of heaven and earth, says to this sinful man. That's the miracle. What's he say? You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Does Jesus say, oh, no, 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 Peter. Get, get up off your knees. Get up off your knees, Peter. Uh, don't, don't, don't say those things about me. No, they're all true. He is Lord. This man in front of him is a sinner. He's holy. Peter is a sinner. He deserves to be judged. He deserves to be judged for his sins. There's nothing he can do. 
But what is the Lord's response? You don't have to be afraid. Because our Lord is not just the king of creation. My friend, listen carefully. carefully. He's the king of grace. Unmerited favor. Undeserved love. He says you don't have to be afraid. You know what this means? Anyone, any person who feels so far from God, any person who feels they don't measure up and they've disappointed themselves, they've disappointed God, they are a complete, irredeemable failure and they drop before God and confess that to Him, that man, that woman does not need to be afraid. Because when we own our sin, when we own His holiness, when we own that we can do nothing but call upon Him for undeserved mercy and grace, we don't have to be afraid. But I'll tell you, who does need to be afraid? The ones that need to be afraid are the church-going people. Not all the church-going people, but church-going people who think coming to church, they've made themselves square with the Lord for another week. That coming to church and singing a few songs and bowing head at prayer time and listening to a man go on and on and on, Surely that scores points with God. I mean, you know, even if there's a purgatory, I've been there. I've heard Sam for years. It is those people who think they come to church on Sunday and go out and live the way they want Monday through Saturday. And that's going to tip the scale in their favor and they are going to have God punch their card and if they die, they're going to heaven. Those are the people who need to desperately be afraid. Amen. They're the farthest from the kingdom. The farthest from the kingdom is not the person out there who knows his life is in the tank, who knows her life is a mess, who is living wrong and knows it and feels it and wants to be different. That's not the person farthest from God. The person farthest from the kingdom of God is a person who doesn't feel any longer the need of redeeming grace. Amen. That's who's farthest. It is possible to march into church week after week after week and go farther and farther and farther into the darkness of self-righteousness. Are you here to earn points this morning? Are you here because of morally sensing you ought to? or to please your wife, or your parents, or are you here because you desperately need a word of hope? 
You need God to do something for a sinner. And you own yourself as a sinner. Is that why you're here? If that's why you're here, you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And people who really, truly get saved never forget the feeling of what it feels like to be lost. And they know every day they are only saved by the amazing grace of God. And they are clinging to the feet of Jesus. And they are saying nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Lord Jesus, once again, another day, another time. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Those people don't have to be afraid. Because God will meet you. Jesus will meet you. This is an amazing moment. Is it your moment? Have you ever gotten there? I'm asking my friend, have you ever been here? Have you ever knelt at the feet of the Lord of glory and with all your heart knowing you can never match up, match up, never earn it? Have you cried for mercy? Have you been there? This is a changing moment in their life. Peter's life, James and John's life. It's interesting. Jesus says, don't be afraid. That's singular. Peter, you don't have to be afraid. But then he says, you will now be catching men. You see that word you? That's plural. So it's like Jesus said, Peter, you you don't have to be afraid. He looks around. There's people on their knees, everyone. You, you, you are going to be catching men. Hey, you see this net? You see this? This is nothing. This is nothing. You are from now on going to be catching men, literally catching men alive. (laughs) Catching them and setting them free to true freedom. They now have their commission. You're going to be catching men. Maybe it's their recommission. We know once before, earlier, they followed Jesus. Maybe they drifted back. Maybe they, they thought it was a temporary call. But now it's absolutely clear. This is the moment with Jesus. It's decisive. It's permanent. It's lifelong. And the response of Peter, James, and John to this permanent call is yes. How do we know? It's yes. They understand You will be catching men. You are going with me. Hey, you've been in the fishing business together. You're going to join my fishing business. Except I fish for something a little different than you've been fishing for. We're going to go fishing for men, catching them alive. That's my business. And guess what? They went into partnership with Jesus. Handed over the control of this business to him. Verse 11 says... And when they brought their boats to land, they left, what's the next word? Everything. 
and followed him. Now think about it. Think about what they left. What did they leave? They didn't leave their hobby. These aren't, these aren't men who like to go out on the weekend, drown a few worms, maybe pop a few tops. That's not who these guys are. No. This is their business. This is their everything. This is their business. This is how they feed their family. This is how they take care of the needs of their family. And think about not just what they left, think about when they left it. They didn't leave their business when it's gone bust. Well, you know, might as well try Jesus, everything else has gone bust. I can't do anything else, right? <laughs> I must be called to preach, okay? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. No, when did, when? It's their greatest success. Their business has never been at this point. This is jackpot time. This is the height of their careers. This is the apex of what they have worked for all their lives. And they walk away from it. Why? Why would these businessmen on the greatest moment of their careers walk away from their business. I'll tell you why. Only one reason. They believed Jesus was worth it. He was calling them and they knew who he was. They knew what he could have done to them as holy creator. They know he's been merciful to them. And now they, he is telling them, you're going to enter into my business. You're going to give up your business. And you're going to enter into my business. And in the heart of their souls, they believe he's worth it. That's why they do it. Jesus doesn't have to pry their hands off the nets. They're not clinging to the side of the boat. No, Jesus, no. No. Just, just another season. Just another season. I've almost got enough in that 401k, Jesus. Just a little longer. I've got a plan, Jesus. You keep me healthy, Jesus. And you... You wait until I get really old, like 64. No, 65. You wait until I get really old. These men are in their prime. It's the best day of their lives. They are successful, but Jesus is called. He's worth it. Two minutes to apply this. My thoughts as I've read this this week turn back to an incredible <laughs> a few days I was able to spend in the hills of North Carolina, Ridgecrest Camp, the mountains up there, with a man who was writing some material. He was a missionary up in the Yukon and been there for years, and he was writing some material that God was using. And, and we were really the first group of pastors 
to hear it, and he's teaching us. The man's name is Henry Blackaby, and he's teaching his material called Experiencing God. If you're not familiar with that, now over the last 25 years, it's been published in the millions of copies, has been incredibly used, and I was in, so blessed to be there with this group of men as this brother taught this material. But here is the application that came to my heart this week. Here is the wisdom. Number one, Jesus reveals himself to us. Jesus reveals himself to us so that we might know him and then join him in his work. Jesus reveals himself to us. That is, by his grace, he helps us see who he really is. He shows us who he is by, in his word, by his Holy Spirit. He reveals himself to us. Why? So that we are punished, we're stunned, we're really impressed with how great he is. It's all about him. No, so that we may know him. We may know our creator. We may know him intimately. We may have a relationship with him and then join him in his work. What happened here? Jesus revealed himself to Peter and to all those fishermen. He did this so they would know who he is and know who they are and know that he is not just holy, he's merciful and gracious. And then, wonder wonders, this Lord of glory invites me, us, to join him in his work. Now, friend, let me tell you, some people who are here this morning, people with empty nets, empty nets, physically, emotionally, spiritually, your nets are empty. Let Jesus have those nets. Let him have the nets of your life. Let him have all the containers of your life. Let him have all the relationships. <laughs> Quit clutching that business. Quit holding on to those kids like they're yours more than his. Quit clutching into that vision that you've never yielded to him. And knowing that he is holy and he is gracious, just lay it all out to him. And guess what? When you give anything to Jesus, it frees you of your grasping spirit and then he can give it back to you and now it's yours, but you're free. And now it becomes not just something that controls you, it becomes something that you can use for his glory. Empty nets. And some here this morning, this is the boat moment for you. You didn't know it was going to happen. I didn't know it was going to happen. But Jesus has gotten in your boat. And you've seen him like you've never seen him before. I know. I know for some of you, this is happening right now. 
you're seeing Jesus as you've never seen him before. You're really seeing him and truly understanding this moment when you drop to your knees and say, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. But, oh, Lord, don't leave me. Don't you dare leave me. Because you're holy, but you're my hope. And if you are there this morning on your knees in your boat and you're crying out to Jesus that he's holy and you're not and you're clinging to him, my friend, you praise God Almighty today. This is the moment of divine grace in your life. Listen to his voice. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Now, follow me. This is your moment. Oh, Lord. Sovereign Lord Jesus. You are God and you do not change. You are the same yesterday and today and forever. You are the God in this room that you were in that boat. Oh, God of heaven and earth. Holy, holy, holy. Merciful and mighty. Gracious. Gracious, may we cling to you, draw every heart to you, bring comfort to every soul, confessing you now as Lord and Savior. Those that are casting themselves upon you, speak peace to them, Lord Jesus. Those with empty nets this morning, oh Lord, encourage them. Take our empty nets, Lord. Give them back to us now as we lay them before you. Fill our lives with that which is truly treasure now and forevermore. Lord, we may not go anywhere geographically, but help us today to get up and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. All this happened because Peter had an understanding, a vision a real vision of who Jesus was and it changed everything.